Hello and welcome to The Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and all the way to my front is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. I had a terrible stomach flu, so we were not in person. We were over the visuals, uh, the virtual internets, but that's, that's all right, because we're virtually looking at something today. Big news. It was Valentine's Day, so we didn't do, I you know, I did date with the, the old wifey, so we didn't record on our normal Wednesdays, and it just so happened that two major debates in the Christian scene dropped from James White, um, which we would have loved to, like, pregame, but we're, we're reacting to it, at least, in the aftermath, which is something cool. Um, probably heard from me at some point in this podcast that the Trent Horan versus James White debate, James White reformed Calvinist, uh, Protestant, and Trent Horan, member of Catholic Answers, Roman Catholic apologist, uh, debated 10 years ago, I think almost now, or somewhere close to then, like 2013, 2014, uh, on whether or not you can lose your salvation. And it was the first Christian debate I had ever watched. And I was shocked by it. Um, and brought to reform theology through it. I was not Roman Catholic or anything like that, and I actually agreed with James White when I started watching it, but I had no idea how he was going to argue, and um, anyways, super impactful debate in my life. Um, pretty famous debate in general, like one of the more famous debates of James White's career, and he's got like 187 of them or something like that. So they finally reclash almost 10 years later, and they decide to make it a big, big thing. So they debate on a podcast, and then they have two formal debates in person at a church in Houston, one of which is on your screen right now. So we're going to be reacting to the first of the two, which is on Sola Scriptura. Uh, you watched these before me, Sebastian, actually. What what did you think of the both debates in general, like high-level summary, before we get into this one? High-level, I thought they were very engaging, refreshing to see two different positions collide since I tend to just see either just Catholic sources on their own talking to the Catholics or James White talking mostly to Protestants. So it was cool to see them engage one another. And I think that for the Sola Scriptura one, Trent Horn would have scored more debate points since he brought up more points than James White. And then in the second one, and the one on Purgatory, I would say that James White had an advantage over Trent Horn in attacking Purgatory. Yeah, I I actually disagree. Um, I think Trent Horn is a very good debater um, as far as he's very poignant. He keeps his cool for the most part. He brings up a lot of sources. He's well-researched. So the first debate they did, the, the one back in 2013, 2014, he holds his ground really well on an indefensible subject, I think, which is that you can lose your salvation. And so equally here, he's debating against Sola Scriptura. I think it's an indefensible position, Purgatory even less so. And he does fine. So, you know, credit to him for being a debater and being prepared. I will say, I don't think that he won the first debate, not just because I'm biased and I don't agree with this position. That's true. But I think even from a formal objective debate standard, he didn't rebut a lot of James' points. In fact, some of the points he, he just says that's not true and leaves it at that, which is not a rebuttal. Um, it's it's like highlighting that it's not a rebuttal too. It's not a good debate tactic. And so while he does the classic debate tactic of shotgunning a ton of material, that James does not get to all of it, to be fair. Um, I... I don't think that he rebuts James' points, and James has points as well. So at most, you could say it is a wash objectively. Um, but I think it was more embarrassing from Trent's point of view, like if you're looking at Trent objectively, that he noted things that he couldn't rebut. You know, he'd be like, that's just not true, and then leave it at that, which is... 
kind of the worst way you want to address your opponent's point. So we will listen to both their openings. It's a two-hour debate, which sounds super long. It's actually super short. Um, I know James White was talking about wanting to make these like six-hour debates just so that they finally they get somewhere instead of two hours is like basically they rehash very well-known points uh, but don't get to like new points. And so uh, two hours, you could watch it yourself at home if you'd like. Um, you don't have to, but I, I think it's worth your time. It will probably not be that helpful. <laughs> <laughs> if you are on one side or the other, unfortunately, it's just one of those debates where somebody doesn't clearly, clearly lose. So it is really just a exercise. It's like watching two sports teams tie. Um, but I'm going to show why I'd like to show in the openings where, where there's holes in the debate that James either didn't exploit or um, did exploit. And I want to highlight that. So, uh, before we get into openings too, Sebastian, maybe you want to preface us on the subject of the debate itself, Sola Scriptura. What are the what are the sides here? Mm -hmm. Sure. So with the Protestant understanding of Sola Scriptura is that it's the the Bible is the only infallible source of authority, morals, faith, and teaching for the Christian man or woman. Again, keyword infallible direct from God, God breathe. The Catholic position that Trent Horn takes is that that is not correct. The Bible is indeed infallible, but it is not the only source of authority and teaching and morals. They would say that church tradition is spoken by the chair of Peter or by decree of the Catholic church. It can become dogma and it is infallible teaching besides the Bible. Yeah. And uh, I don't know you get too ahead of the debate, but it's a pretty well-known debate because the word sola scriptura is Latin phrase comes from the Reformation. So it's been a debate at least happening for 500 years now. Um, the The standard arguments are that, that the Catholic side says that they have identified a tradition that is extra biblical. It's not found in the Bible. It's not from the Bible, but it's still dogmatic it's so binding on christians to get to heaven and be a proper christian and that it was originally given by jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to the church leaders it just was never written down because honestly shrug big big shrug question mark i don't know why they have no excuses for why it wasn't written down except that it wasn't um and then they say okay uh it's not in scripture but you need to believe that mary ascended to heaven otherwise you're not a christian and that was you know Jesus told Peter, told Paul, Paul told Jimmy, and Jimmy told Clement, and Clement told, you know, they have a big long string until current Pope, who's finally announcing that this is dogma, and we all know it. Um, but what is ironic about that position is that they will, they'll say what currently is tradition and dogmatic, but they always reserve the right in the future to discover new tradition that is now dogmatic, that wasn't dogmatic before. And which is like, how do you, how do you discuss? I thought it was always in the church, wasn't it? Always passed down some secret whispered in the halls of Christendom. Um, you should know it. Like there should be a definitive list of traditions that were passed down by the apostles that just wasn't written down, but is now written down. But of course it's, there's none because they reserve the right to make up, make up tradition as they go, which is very Jewish. I mean, the Jews wrote down their traditions that were extra biblical, but they always reserve the right to make more. Uh, but at least they wrote, you know, <laughs> at least they wrote the tradition down. Um, anyways, 
I think. I don't know if you want to talk about the. I was actually providential that I shared with you on the chat for the podcast that Church Militant had been doing episodes on this book called The Mystical City of God, which was private revelation received by a nun, a Spanish nun in the 16, around 1670s, 1600s, Maria de Jesus de Agreda, Agreda in, who, in which her revelation, she wrote it down in her book, Mystical City of God, she heard from the Virgin Mary how the Virgin Mary had arrived with heavenly armies to Jerusalem, seen the beast in the book of Revelation, and then, but more importantly, by the near the end of the of the Revelation, she settles the Council of Jerusalem, and then tells the apostles who are writing the Bible the order in which they are to write the books of the of the Gospels, sorry, the four Gospels, and also please don't write anything about me, because you have enough to write about now, I'm summarizing, that will come later in the future. To me, that sounds like a very convenient excuse to, uh, over a thousand years later, be able to sneak in a lot of Marian dogmas that would come up for relate and develop later. Which is how, I mean, unfortunately, so the Catholic Church has been inserting a lot of novel teachings throughout the past 2,000 years. Yeah, it is inarguable, and I don't even argue it, that, that I mean, sometimes, occasionally they do argue it, but not typically, that Catholic dogma is extra-biblical. It is not found in the Bible. It is purely made up. And that's why they're arguing that it doesn't need to be found in the Bible. Like It can't be straight up from us because it was actually maybe from Peter, and we should remember that. Okay, we've had a lot of ado here, so without further ado, let's hear James White's opening statement. Well, good evening. It's good to see everyone here this evening, uh, but we have a very, very short period of time to be able to make our presentations, so I hope you'll allow me to dive directly into that. There is no topic that has more, more often been debated in my encounters with Roman Catholic apologists than the subject of Sola Scriptura, the very first debate that I ever did with Catholic Answers uh, in August of 1990 uh, was on this subject with Jerry Matitix. Uh, there's no reason this evening to repeat everything that has been said before. Uh, Trent did a debate just, I think it was last year, on this subject. All these things are available online. You can listen to them. I want to see if we can move the ball forward and do something uh, a little bit different uh, and, and press things just a little bit so that we can accomplish something this evening. When I do debates with Muslims, I used to travel around the world and did a lot of debates in South Africa, London, Australia, places like that. Muslims will tell you that they will not believe in the deity of Christ unless they... We can speed them up. It's a long debate. I'm going to speed him up, make the executive decision. Sorry at home if you hate speeding up. I'm just going to speed up just a little bit because he's being very deliberate. Find a Bible verse where Jesus says, I am God, worship me. And so I can show them all sorts of references where Jesus is worshiped, where he's called God, where he's called Yahweh, where he's said to be the creator of all things, that he was uh, eternal, that he was prophesied to come, all of these types of things. It's like, no, 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 unless he said, I am God, worship me, I'm not going to believe in the deity of Christ. I think most of us here this evening can recognize that that's not really an overly rational um, understanding. That's not really an overly rational way of doing things. 
There is no text of scripture that uses the exact words, scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith. Nor should we demand that there be such a text if in point of fact, the scriptures teach abundantly that the scriptures are God speaking, that they are a rule of faith, and that there is nothing else that is even close in the biblical witness to the scriptures in regards to that subject. So scripture abundantly witnesses to the deity of Christ, so it likewise abundantly witnesses to the unique nature of scripture, which leads inevitably to the conclusion that it is the sole infallible rule of faith. Very quickly, Jesus' teaching on the authority of scripture is unambiguous in the gospels. The citation of scripture, not tradition, is the final word for the incarnate Lord. So for example, in John chapter 10, when Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken, no debate broke out. Everyone accepted the reality that those scriptures are unique in their authority. And in Matthew chapter... Then I, I just to pause up to point out, to have some commentary, just not playing the straight debate, he brings up his central point, and I think this is the most important point, and that is the way Trent will try to attack, and the way typically you attack Sola Scriptura, is to say that uh, the Bible doesn't... If, if you think the only infallible rule of faith is the Bible, so we can only look in the Bible for rules, the Bible doesn't have a rule that says you can only use Scripture to have infallible rules, and therefore you've got two conflicting things here, right? You're saying, I've got a rule outside of Scripture that says Scripture is the only thing with rules, therefore you've got a nonsensical argument. James is saying that sola scriptura is not an infallible principle. It's one that we derive from Scripture. But the question, to to defeat it, you need to show that it is, that the Scriptures deny it, because the Scriptures do talk about how the Scripture is true, it's, it's God's Word, and we don't have God's Word outside of Scripture, right? Like, that's the definition of Scripture of God's word is what we have in scripture. We don't have God's word somewhere else, right? He can speak through prophets, but we don't know that they're prophets until their words come true, right? There's all the tests of a prophets. And so we don't have God's word outside of scripture. So anybody, and, and the Catholic church would agree that we, we don't because he doesn't prophesy like that today, at least not the certifiably. And we don't have other, so we don't have other written sources that aren't in scripture. Otherwise we'd make them scripture, right? So, um, that's that's the argument for sola scriptura is that it is implicit in the teaching of the bible it's not an infallible rule in and of itself outside of scripture it's just how do you compete like what where's where's another source of infallibility um that is the word of god because we know that the word of god is the only thing that is infallible that's this core argument here mm-hmm. after 22 when speaking to the sadducees jesus answered and said to them you are mistaken not understanding the scriptures nor the power of god for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Here Jesus quotes from the scriptures, quotes from the Pentateuch, and holds the men he's talking to accountable for words that were written 1400 years earlier as if God had spoken those those very words to them that is absolutely unique you would have to be able to demonstrate that any other source of authority that you want to present to us this evening that has to be taken equally with scripture has the same pedigree as Jesus's view that scripture is God speaking even 1400 years after the words were written down so the way James, I think, is just teeing this up is, is saying, if you want to defeat me in this debate, Trent, you will have to prove that a source outside of Scripture is also infallible. So you, so it's really, he's, he's arguing that Trent should give a positive position that the church, the tradition, 
is infallible. He needs to defend that as infallible because that is Catholic dogma, right? That the church is infallible in, in its official rulings. And so he's setting Trent up to say, you have to prove that that's the case. Of course, the church is not as an organization. It is not. The organization has believed in Arianism before, right? Like the, as, a, as a large majority organization. So we know that the church has made mistakes in the past before. Um, it has not been taken out entirely, right? The Christ promise holds true that he does not let his church be wiped off the face of the earth, but the church has been wrong before. It is a, it's a fallible organization because it's filled with people. And so mm-hmm. that's what he's challenging Trent is just to stand up and defend the Catholic dogma that says that there is authority outside of scripture. Don't just attack scripture, right? Or, or call into question whether or not scripture is the only source, but defend the other sources that you're going to claim. That's, that's his framing here. And we know debates are all about framing. So um, typically, uh, I don't like these debate tactics because they're not helpful for the crowd, but it is how you debate. Typically, debates are about framing and then reframing and basically never allowing your opponent to frame the conversation because the opponent is probably framing the conversation in a way that immediately defeats your position. So you usually don't want to work inside your opponent's framework. Rarely, your opponent has set up a very fair framework, and so you decide to to use it usually only if you have an immediate win on your hands. Um, and it's probably the most powerful way to win a debate is to acquiesce to your opponent's framework and then answer them. So like the best way for Trent Horn to win this debate right now, the most unique way, the best way for him to go up to the podium on rebuttal and say, I, he, I here's definitive proof, right? That I've got it there. There's authority outside of the Bible. Um, we'll see if he does that. There is no counter argument from Jesus' opponents when you contrast the ultimate authority of scripture against that of their own claimed divine traditions. And I do need to read this whole section because it's important from Mark chapter 7. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with defiled hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Then he says, leaving or abandoning the commandment of God, you hold fast to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever you might benefit from me is korban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer leave him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating, making empty, making void the word of God, scripture, by your tradition, which you have handed down, using the standard term for the handing on of tradition, and you do many such things as that. It is important to recognize that Jesus well knew that these men believed that that Korban rule, which is found in the Mishnah, had been passed down from Moses orally outside of the written scriptures. They believed it was a divine tradition that was passed on orally, and Jesus rejected that and said that you should test any such tradition by what? By scripture. And this is the most damning text. Um because we all believe in Jesus, we all believe in the Bible, right? It's so do the Catholics. So when they see Jesus damning their exact position, and we don't even, the Catholics don't even hold to the Mishnah. You know, if, they, if they're going to be consistent, they would say that that tradition, word of God is always passed down orally and in written form. It's never just one source of, of God's revelation. It's always two uh, or mixed, at least multiple. They, I guess, should be accepting the Mishnah, right? Because the Mishnah is the is the passed down oral tradition. It's still alive today. It's still growing today of huge books of commentaries and, and tradition on 
Jewish custom. And it was held to as authoritative even by the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, pretty serious Bible scholars, held to the Mishnah. And why don't Catholics hold to the Mishnah? Maybe because Jesus eviscerates it right here. He says the Mishnah is, is not authoritative. He explicitly says when the Mishnah and the Bible meet, the Mishnah loses. And so we, we likewise, the implication here, of course, is that where our tradition and the Bible meet, Scripture should always win. So your tradition is not infallible. Clearly, it, it, it takes subservience to the Bible. And just so that we're clear, all Protestants believe we have tradition. I have tradition. I would even call the Principe Adultery, the, the section of John that's disputed, the Gospel of John, where Jesus rescues a prostitute from being stoned, um, is likely not in the original Gospels. It's tradition added in. I, I believe it happened. So that's me holding to tradition, but... Um, I don't believe it's the word of God. And if we somehow showed in the word of God that it couldn't have happened, like maybe it's a breach of the law, right? That Jesus wouldn't have preached the law like that. Then I would I would let go of the tradition because the tradition is fallible and scripture is not. There you go. That's the, that's the key. So you can have traditions as long as they don't go against the word of God, thus invalidating the word of God as Jesus is criticizing them. Yeah, and I think importantly, too, you can't have traditions that you hold equal to the Word of God. So I can't right, say that right. you need to believe in the Principe Adultere or go to hell, because um, who am I to say that? Right? Only God can damn and only God can save. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you are making void or empty the Scripture. Now, the apostles taught the same thing about the supremacy of Scripture that Jesus did. The supremacy of Scripture over any other authority. We know that Peter wrote in 2 Peter one twenty one. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you want to say it, there's anything that goes along with Scripture. There is anything that Scripture needs to be made uh, equal with, that is necessary for the interpretation of Scripture. Then you need to show me where it is described in Scripture as men speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the most graphic descriptions of what inspiration is all about, and it's only to be applied to what? To scripture, not to anything else. Scripture is a product of divine action and uses the speaking of men to communicate the very words of God. I remember in 1999, I had the opportunity of debating Father Mitchell Pacwa on Sola Scriptura in San Diego, and I asked Father Pacwa a question. I said, has the Roman Catholic Church dogmatically defined a single word that Jesus ever said that's not found in scripture? And he said, no, haven't. Has the Roman Catholic Church dogmatically defined any word that an apostle said that appears only outside of scripture. And he said, no, I appreciate the honesty in that. That's very, very, very important to recognize. No words of Jesus or apostles defined dogmatically by Rome outside of scripture. You will look in vain for any such language as we've already seen ever used to tradition or magisterial statements, conciliar proclamations, etc., in scripture or in the early church. Scripture is God-breathed. Paul, in preparing Timothy for the battles and trials he would face as the man of God in the church, directed him to scripture. He wrote to Timothy and said, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able, they have the capacity to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Not just to give you life, but to give you wisdom, knowledge, guidance with an object and a result. And then the key passage, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be qualified, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, these are the final words that Paul writes to his dear, beloved son, Timothy. And they're in the context of opposition. Yeah. Thoroughly equipped 
I would say that in my understanding of reading Paul and Koine Greek, equipped to perfection, complete, meaning complete to perfection. So for you, dear audience, what that means is the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, has everything that you need to be perfectly equipped for the rest of your life for every good work in the name of God. Meaning there are not other God-related, faith-related things that you need outside of Scripture. Otherwise, it would not yes. perfectly have completed you, right? You needed to know about Mary's ascension or the myriad of other dogmas that you need to know in order to get to heaven according to the Catholic Church. Uh, yes, which is critical because just I'll give you just one. Unan Sartan, uh, after 1200s, I think, from memory, it is necessary for the salvation of every man to be subject to the Roman pontiff. That's requiring you to do something that's not in scripture in order for you to be saved or otherwise you'll end up, end up in hell. Very important, I would say. Mm -hmm. And it's not in the Bible. Mission and having to deal with falsehood. By what standard is Timothy to be able to do this after Paul is gone? Well, by that which is God-breathed. The term theonoustos is a hapax legomenon. In all my debates, that means it appears only one time in the text of scripture. In all my debates over decades with Roman Catholic representatives, no one has ever challenged or disputed the meaning God breathed at this point in this text. But we do need to address that now. To define the term in a believing context, we should start with recognizing this as a term used by the Apostle Paul. Think about terms like logos. John uses logos in John 1.1. And all the scholars run around trying to find, well, what's, what's, what's John trying to communicate there? Uh, in 1 Corinthians, have you seen the, the, uh, uh, the 1946 movie that just came out? Uh, the term arsenokoites in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what they're trying to do is say it doesn't really mean homosexuals. And what they will do is they will run off to other sources outside of the canon of Scripture. Jewish sources would tell you exactly what Paul was talking about when he said arsenokoites. They would also tell you exactly what John was talking about when he said logos. And the same thing is true when we come to the term theanoustos. There is more than sufficient evidence when you ask the question, where was Paul deriving his use of this term? What is its background? Look to the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek Old Testament. Read the 119th Psalm, if you would like, and recognize the, the depth of testimony from the scriptures themselves as God's speaking. He exalts his word even above his name, as we're told in Psalm 119. So scripture is uniquely God speaking. No mythical formulation of tradition, oral tradition, sacred tradition, whatever the term you want to voice upon us, can ever be said to be God-breathed. It is God speaking. And think about that. When God speaks, his words carry his authority. And therefore, epistemologically speaking, we are talking about an ultimate authority. We may point to other sources to, to uh, demonstrate the, the general historical validity of, of biblical passages, things like that, the biblical history. But we are not, by appealing to those sources, saying they are a higher standard that makes scripture true. If scripture is God-breathed, then only God's testimony can verify that. And has the church been given anything else that is God-breathed? Have we been given anything? No, we have not. Scripture is, in fact, ontologically unique and hence sufficient to function as the very avenue of Christ's voice to his sheep in every generation. It is to the canonical scriptures alone that I am bound to yield such implicit subjection as to follow their teaching without admitting the slightest suspicion that in them any mistake or any statement intended to mislead could find a place. And so we have two positions, sola scriptura and sola ecclesia, or as been suggested by some younger friends of mine, leave the Latin out of it and compare scripturalism 
versus ecclesialism. Ecclesialism would include Rome, the various Orthodox groups, Greek, Russian, Ukrainian, etc., Assyrian Church of the East, Oriental groups, all of who claim to possess authoritative oral... Yeah, they had, uh, all these churches, apostolic, some would call them. I would not call them that, but yeah. Ecc ecclesiastical churches, churches that are centralized and demand absolute authority. Tradition and a magisterial power to interpret and bind, and most of them claim some charism of infallibility for themselves. Yeah, they all claim to be the original church, which is, you know, odd. As much as Catholics make fun of Protestants for having a million different sects, it's like, <laughs> got a lot of imposters, There's a lot of imposters out there. So Rome is not alone in that, but we don't have any representatives from those folks here this evening who are debating, so we just simply point out that it's not simply a default that if you say sola scriptura is not true, therefore we must be the ones that then get to uh, take the mantle at that point. But those are the two positions that we are looking at. We are looking at a scripturalist position that says because of the nature of scripture as God speaking, it is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. It is that which does not change. What happens if you abandon sola scriptura? I would suggest to you that we have lots of examples of what happens when you abandon sola scriptura and right now, we have a clear example of it in Roman Catholicism itself. Now, let me just mention something. <clears throat> Very often, <clears throat> Catholic anthropologists will want to compare Catholicism with, quote-unquote, Protestantism, as if there is a Protestant church. There isn't a Protestant church. There are all sorts of groups that are non-Catholic, but how many of them actually believe and practice sola scriptura? Those that do, those that are focused upon the sufficiency of scripture and its, its high character, have tremendous unanimity of opinion and belief and theology between them. But sola scriptura practicing denominations versus the ecclesial denominations that have these claims of external authorities, that's what we're looking at this evening. And when you abandon sola scriptura, you look at the confusion that it currently reigns within Roman Catholicism thanks to Pope Francis. And how can that be corrected without an unchanging standard from God in the scriptures themselves? That's an important issue that we'll undoubtedly be talking about more this evening. Thank you for your attention. It goes really fast. But I appreciate it. Thank you. That was actually really slow, man. Woo. Sometimes I'm tempted. I watch these things at two times speed instead of Sebastian, so I'm tempted to yeah. <laughs> fly through. So we'll give Trent his his 20 minutes too. Don't worry. Probably longer because we'll probably pause some more. He is about to do so. Just as he's getting ready here, he's about to use a slideshow presentation, which is embarrassing. You should never do this in debate. I, my my humble opinion there, but I think it's. Um, aggressive in that you're going to present so much information that we couldn't listen to it it needs to be on a slide too it's also like awkward uh, as you're going to see he has to set it up and then thirdly I, I don't know if they fixed it on this recording here but on the original recording it like cuts out his audio while he shares a slide for about like the first couple slides it sounds like it is okay so he's got no audio here because <laughs> <laughs> something is messed up with the recording. Don't, if you're a debater, I don't know who you're talking to, but if you're going to debate publicly, don't bring the slides out, man, unless it's like one visual, right? I guess there's some things you could use a slide for, but just it's usually not the way to debate. I um, can bring some so cards. Now, I'm going to present three arguments that show. So it's <laughs> <laughs> don't do that either. The first argument is inspired by my friend Jimmy Aiken, and it goes like this. If Sola Scriptura were true, it would be binding upon God's people. Sola Scriptura was never binding upon God's people. Therefore, Sola Scriptura is false. So I'm going to pause and tell you what he said. Bottle slide was up and you couldn't hear his voice. He was saying he's making quick work. He wants to be unique, just like James White said. This is a debate that goes over a lot. So he wants to go over a lot of the history of this debate. And so he's going to present three arguments. What? He is the arguer. 
right? So he should only be arguing one argument. Um, is he not convinced by argument number one? So he needs to have a couple backups. I think terrible debate practice to have multiple arguments. It's not rare. So this is not like a unique technique to have multiple arguments. But I think that it sh tells me you fundamentally don't trust your arguments. So you came up with three because you're like, well, you know, I'll have, a, I'll have argument number one. And if that fails, because it might fail, then I've got argument two. And if that fails, because it might fail, we'll have argument three. That doesn't, <laughs> it's not very confident. It's not very confident. You're putting on the confident face. Um, it does present more points for your opponent to have to rebut, right? Rebut. So even if James White debates totally definitively, Trent Horn is, is swearing they're, they were bad and then he's lost on two of the points, he's still got point number three. Um, so he can feel good about himself when he goes home. I feel like it's a cover your ass moment. I I really dislike the th the three thing, but that's what he's gonna do. So that's that's how he's gonna open his statement. If you notice, James White had he had a long opening statement because he's got twenty minutes, but he gave one core principle, which was that scripture is the only thing that describes itself as the word of God, and nothing else can we say is the word of God that's outside of scripture. Otherwise, it would be scripture, and so. Um, that, that's the principle. And the way to defeat it would be to present me something that is God's word that's outside of scripture. Um, that's, that you know, for all the different flowers that he put around that, that was the two principles he had. And so you would hope that Trent Horn, if he means to debate well, would present an equally strong, simple approach. Now, James and I agree on premise one, but what about premise two? On his website, James wrote, Protestants do not assert that sola scriptura is a valid concept during times of revelation. How could it be, since the rule of faith to which it points was at that very time coming into being? He's right. In the Old Testament, a prophet's unwritten proclamations were infallible rules of faith. In the New Testament... Fades out again, so I'll let him roll. <laughs> if you know, it's an interesting, uh, interesting argument here because he's saying that how could you only rely on scripture if when we didn't have scripture, we had to listen to God's word being revealed? Um, well, how do you judge whether or not something is God's word via scripture? So when the New Testament was being revealed, how did you how did you tell whether or not Hebrews was the word of God? Well, you you compared it to the other scripture. As scripture describes, the Bereans do it. I was going to say, the Bereans. Yeah, I mean. Yep, they were exa examining intently day by day whatever Paul was saying, so. Right, so the scriptures were always the the guide, even when scripture was being revealed. So, it the the only reason it wasn't that we wouldn't say sola scriptura was valid back then was because scriptura was still being written, right? So scriptura wasn't full, um, but you could still say I I think you could still say sola scriptura back then, right? You could say the only infallible rule of faith is scripture or anything else that God is speaking that is now going to be scripture but like that's so you judge the burgeoning scripture from the hand of paul um, by previous scripture just like the bereans did god's people changed from having multiple infallible rules of faith in scripture tradition and a living teaching authority to only one infallible rule of faith in scripture but if this massive paradigm shift happened someone would have said why this this divinely authorized structure changed but nobody did Jesus and the apostles never said this would happen in the future. And the first Christians after the apostles never said it did happen. Ignatius of Antioch in 8107 never cites the New Testament as scripture, but he tells his audience to follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows the Father. 
The Protestant scholar Bruce Metzger says Clement of Rome's Bible was the Old Testament, not the New Testament. But Clement said in the first century, the apostles chose successors to carry on their work. In fact, while the Apostles' Creed mentions the Holy Catholic Church, it never mentions scripture. According to the then renowned Lutheran scholar Yaroslav Pelikan, in the anti-Nicene or pre-Nicene church, there was no notion of sola scriptura. So you'll notice here, one of his three backup arguments, his first argument, his primary argument then, I'll say, because his first one, is that it's an argument from history. He's saying the early church didn't treat scripture as scripture. I, I mean, doesn't sound true, does it? But that's what he's claiming. And so we also shouldn't treat scripture as scripture, meaning the sole infallible rule of faith. He's saying the early church invested God-like authority to bishops. Again, doesn't sound right, does it? But that's what he says. Um, and so he, he showing the, the evident lack of people talking about sola scriptura, the, the, the sole infallible rule of faith being scripture in the early church. You could argue that it was because it was assumed, but he's saying that it's that's actually because it wasn't a principle. I mean, I was going to say, doesn't it seem strange that you can reconstruct almost the whole Bible just from the writings of the church fathers? So, yeah, I, hard to argue that the early church wasn't really into the Bible, like you just said. You read Clement, First Clement, and it's like you're you're just reading a bunch of Pauline quotes, right? So, um, very yes. scripture heavy. The yes, death and of the... I mean, for for that point, you cannot reconstruct the glories of Mary from the church fathers so. right and a lot of you know it's not just the glories of mary which is pretty out there like any catholic tradition is not typically not quoting the bible right because it's not not biblical principles the assumption of mary is not a biblical principle or um the current statement on uh, damning the death penalty right saying the death penalty is evil it's not certainly not in biblical principles right maybe they quote one text from the sermon of the Mount, certainly not like large paragraphs like the early church fathers did because Ultimately, because the Pope doesn't care. Right? He doesn't care what Scripture has to say, but nor do Roman Catholics when they're trying to argue for something that isn't in Scripture. The apostles did not mean their authority was automatically transferred to the written word alone. That's an assumption contradicted by the evidence. The Baptist scholar Lee Martin MacDonald writes, in the first one and a half centuries of church history, no prominence was given to a gospel writer or to a gospel as a written document. Michael Kruger, a Protestant that James has interviewed and largely agrees with, says, for many modern scholars, the key time is the end of the second century. Only then, largely due to the influence of Irenaeus, were these books first regarded as scripture. We also don't get, for the record, and I really don't like the first quote, um, we also don't give prominence to the gospel writers. Like, we, we, we don't say that because Matthew wrote Matthew, it is authoritative. We say Matthew is authoritative because it is the word of God. And so do you, do you Trent Horn, dispute that Matthew is the word of God? No. So why are you why are you saying that uh, that people didn't glorify Matthew back? Like that's not that's not where we derive Matthew's authority. The Gospel of Matthew. It's not where we derive the Gospel of Matthew's authority from Matthew. We derive it from God. So in the same way, the Apostle Paul was not infallible as an apostle. He was not infallible. Just like Peter, famously Peter, was not infallible as an apostle. He post Christ post-authority given to him, all of jazz, right? Full-on apostle mode. He, the, keys. the keys are given. He is eating with just the Jews and has to be corrected by Paul. So he's not infallible. The apostles are not infallible. I feel like that's a big miss here. I don't think James White really addresses it either, so I'm going to address it here. The apostles weren't infallible. And so there wasn't a mix. There, there was not this mix, this multi, um, 
authority thing that he's talking about in the early church because the the living authorities the teachers as he says is one of the sources the apostles were infallible they were only infallible as far as they spoke scripture and we have scripture just sola scriptura <laughs> the authority was scripture not the apostle and then likewise the tradition where's that it's we, we don't have it so it's not it's not there you claim to have it but you can't show it to us and you make it up on the fly you know it shows the tradition shows up in 1300 so these were not there was no mixed it was one one principle and that was the word of god was the rule of faith it is unfortunate that he quotes i think he's quoting irenaeus like alluding to irenaeus for the second quote for many modern scholars and then goes on the key time of the second century mm-hmm. um irenaeus Unfortunately, is the first person who uses the word tradition from the apostles. I mean, officially, really. And it was about the age of Jesus that he, Jesus died, was crucified at 60 years of age, according to a tradition that he heard from the apostles. But I guarantee you, Eastern Orthodox Catholics and historians and Copts out there, they reject that Jesus was 60 plus years old when he died. Yep. But that's the first time the word tradition shows up in history, like, for Christian history, sorry, I should specify. And I also want to dispute, you know, I'm, 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 I'm agitated now for that second quote that he says that the writings of the New Testament regarded as scripture. Peter, in his second letter, regards the New Testament as scripture already. Right. Paul's writings, about, at least, right? Yeah. Yes. As talking about Paul's letters, as he does in all his letters, Paul when he speaks in them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Meaning, Peter is equating the letters of Paul to the Old Testament. Yep. As words of God. So, modern scholars, and what does that even mean, um, believe that the church didn't accept the... That the scripture was being created or have a final canon until the second century. You could argue, yes, there was a lot of debate on what should be included in the canon, but by a lot of debate, I mean they agreed on, you know, 20 out of 21 books of the New Testament, right? Like they, they, it was pretty, we all agree on these books, but maybe Revelation, like I've never seen Revelation. Like, can I get a copy of Revelation? I'm not sure that's legit. Or Hebrews was one that was also like, was it? Like, do you have a copy of it? Right. These were books that were not widely distributed because it's hard to distribute books. That's that's why there was a lot of argument about the canon was that you heard a book that you've never read before. And you're like, is it part of the canon? I don't know. I've never even read it. So you understandably, there was debate on the canon, but it was pretty mild. Right. Pretty, pretty quickly. The canon was established. Mm-hmm. And not by gavel, by the way, not by divine mandate either. It was by like market consensus that these are the books. There is no way the church could have operated under sola scriptura in the second century if it did not even think the New Testament was scripture. As you just said, they did. Instead, (laughs) the infallible rule of faith was the faith itself, which included the faith being recorded in writings like the memoirs of the apostles, lived through the sacred liturgy, and taught by the genuine successors of the apostles. Ridiculous. Of course, a bunch of fantasy in there about there being a sacred liturgy. Where? Which... Which consistent liturgy? Uh, I'll go to my friend Eric Alharb and he'll have a totally different liturgy than you, you crazy man. Like, anyway, whatever. Not to get into very tertiary issues here, but the liturgy, the order of things you do in service is not part of 
even a consistent church tradition in the Catholic Church, like let alone like they changed the liturgy, you know, in the Second Vatican Council. <laughs> so it's no secret that the liturgy is not carried on from the original version of it, even post nineteen sixty, let alone eighteen sixty, let alone two hundred eighty. Yes, Sad. I would. What Michael was trying to say for dear audience in a more in a more calm way, there were competing liturgies within the Latin Church, if you want to call it that, within the Latin side of the Roman Empire in Spain and Hispania, Gaul, and famously Ireland, after they Christianized and they just refused to do whatever the Pope says, they try to be independent. So yeah, there was no unique liturgy. It was something that developed over time. Meaning it wasn't a, clearly it was not a consistent tradition. Right. That's why Irenaeus said in the second century, for how should it be if the apostles themselves had not left us writings? Would it not be necessary to follow the course of the tradition which they handed down? If Sola Scriptura did not start in the second century, then it never started at all, which means Sola Scriptura is false. Now, James might later on, maybe he'll cite Augustine or Athanasius' affirmations of Scripture, and some of the fathers do praise Scripture, like Augustine or Athanasius. But did they really believe in Sola Scriptura if they believed in the sacerdotal priesthood, the sinlessness of Mary, purgatory? I don't think so. Here's the argument once again. Arguable that they don't, but honestly, I don't really care. If Sola Scriptura were true, it would be binding upon God's people. Sola Scriptura was never binding upon God's people. Therefore, Sola Scriptura is false. I challenge James to show us with evidence, not assumptions, but an apostolic or post-apostolic source, saying God's people went from having multiple infallible rules of faith to only one rule in Scripture. I challenge him to show us by evidence, not assumption, when did Sola Scriptura start? And if you can't do that, then we should assume the first century divinely authorized structure of scripture, tradition, and a living teaching office continued into the future. So if his opening statement basically ended here, it'd be a really short one, but also that would be reasonable, right? He put up the, the argument, which is history shows that this is not the way the early church operated, and we don't have a time when the early church would have changed it, and therefore it's not, the soul scripture is not real because it's not historical. Um, so he's, he's arguing, James, show me where soul scriptura came into being. Um, the framework he's setting, notice, is he's he's making he wants somebody, he wants James and, or the audience members to assume that he what he's saying is is correct. The early church had um, this three office way of of receiving the word of God and in truth and infallibility. Um, and then he's saying, if assuming that is the case, show me where it changed. Um, that's his offering. Of course, you need to destroy that framework because the, the assumption there is not a shared assumption. And so that's why debate is usually a, a series of reframing the framework that somebody set up because the framework that he set up has a big glaring disagreement inside of it. And so as a good debater, you should not set up frameworks. I mean, good is a matter of subjectivity, but as a honest debater, you shouldn't set up frameworks that have disagreed points inside of them. Um, you should build frameworks that are only built on things that both you and your opponent share in common. Um, and you did, James White and him do not share in common that there was these three streams of ways of, of receiving the word of God. And then suddenly it all solidified into one. Um, if I were James, I would attack that, right? That's how you destroy the framework. I don't think he really ever does. So keep that in mind that I think he could have. It's a missed opportunity. And that's uh, how I would have rebutted this first point. Mm -hmm. Here's my second argument. So now, now we're in a backup argument. <laughs> See, that's why I think it's such a weak, like undermining himself, Trent. I should just kept made your first argument longer or something because he didn't need the three. But here's number two. Mm. Sola Scriptura claims scripture is the only infallible rule of faith. However, the term scripture needs to be defined for Sola Scriptura to make sense. For example, if I said divine revelation is our only. And honestly, can I just harp on the thing for a second? 
if James White comes back, destroys the first point, is Trent going to be like, I've been undone. You're right. I'm, I'm converting now. No. He'll just go, oh, I got two more other points. It's such a swarmy way to do things. I do not like it. Likewise. That's why if you're going to do three points, like I guess there's a way conceivably that you can do three different points as long as they're all interconnected together. Like if point one is soul scripture is not historical and point two is because it's not historical, like here's the true history is that the church is, I don't know, you know whatever. Somehow if they mix with each other, at least if the opponent destroys point number one, then all the other ones collapse and you have a real effective debate in your hands. And this way you're like segmenting, you're, you're hedging your bets in case you lose two out of three of your arguments, which again, I, I really do not respect this style of debate, but whatever. Sorry. Here's point number two. Only infallible rule of faith. You naturally ask what constitutes divine revelation. Likewise, when James says scripture is our only infallible rule of faith, he has to explain what constitutes scripture. Here's the formal argument. The proposition, the 66 books of the Protestant Bible are the sole infallible rule of faith for the church is an infallible rule of faith. This proposition is not in scripture. Therefore, an infallible rule of faith exists outside of scripture. Therefore, sola scriptura is false. Point here, classic logical argumentation. I appreciate that at least. Um, the, the, un, the, the problem here, and again, James does not address this. I know for a fact he doesn't address this at all because it's like hidden in this giant wall of text. So that's why I don't appreciate PowerPoint slides. But the point one, the proposition of solo scriptura is an infallible rule of faith is not, I don't, I don't agree with that. We said as much in the beginning of our podcast here, solo scriptura is not an infallible rule. It's a derived rule we get out of scripture. So scripture is infallible and we don't see other rules out of scripture and therefore it is a derived rule out of scripture it's not a rule found in scripture specifically it's around it's a rule derived from scripture just like the trinity is a is a concept derived from scripture and i would say that trinity is an infallible concept but it's not a rule found in scripture it's a, it's a rule derived from scripture anyways that's where i'd attack this point it's so there, there you go proof falls apart if you could attack that point now James agrees with premise one. This is not only a true proposition, it's an infallibly true one. It can't possibly be wrong. At least I hope he agrees with it. But premise, consider premise two. This proposition is not in scripture. If it is, where is it? Show it to me. And, and notice, I think it's a dishonest debate tactic, act, like a, actually dishonest, not just ignorant or bad, in that Trent has set this, and he's, and he's debated like this before, so that's why I say this. Uh, he set this question up so that if I were James White and I said what I just said, and I say, it, technically... Sola Scriptura is not an infallible rule of faith. It is a derivation of the Bible. Trent Horn just wants that soundbite. He wants the soundbite of me saying that it's not an infallible rule of faith, uh, that the Sola Scriptura is not an infallible rule of faith. And then I'll be like, aha, see, James White says it's not an infallible rule of faith, insinuating that I don't agree with it, which of course, or that James White doesn't agree with it, which of course he does agree with it. So he just wants the soundbite. That all he wants is the soundbite. He doesn't care what the soundbite means. He doesn't care about the truth here. He really cares about the soundbite because if James White says it's not an infallible rule, then he thinks he'll look like he won the debate, which I totally disagree because the debate isn't that sola scriptura is an infallible rule of faith. The debate is that sola scriptura is a principle that says scripture is an infallible rule of faith. It, you could call it clever. Maybe it is clever, um, but I would call it uh, not truth-seeking, right? It's really just looking to score points here, not actually get to the truth because... Just looking for the soundbite. Now, James might point to the entire Bible and say that the list of sacred writings or the canon of Scripture is an artifact of divine revelation, not an object of divine revelation. So you go, Trent. Trent's my point there, right? That the soul scriptura is derived from it is an artifact of divine revelation. But that's a distinction without a difference. It's it's not actually. 
the artifact means that it's not directly stated, but it is a it's a logical conclusion of the text. Whereas if something's directly stated, it would be in scripture. So point two there rests entirely on the fact that it is an artifact, not a direct uh, stated thing in scripture. The fact is I can put a proposition up here on this slide and we can debate about whether this proposition is true and whether it serves as an infallible rule of faith for Christians. But James cannot cite anywhere in the Bible that says this proposition is true. He can't even cite passages in the Bible that give sufficient general guidelines that would equip the man of God to know which writings are and are not in Scripture. Not one of the points here, but now he's arguing a totally different one, um, totally different argument. This is argument number th hidden argument number three, which he doesn't have a slide for, um, and that is that how do you even know what Scripture is without me, Popey man? James got this infallible proposition about divine revelation in premise one, not from the Bible, but from other Christians who told him this truth about the Bible. Really from reality, right? The, the reason Christians, Protestants agree that 66 books of the Protestant Bible are the only books of scripture are from reality, from actually observing scripture and, and what is not scripture, right? We reject the Apocrypha as the word of God because of reality, right? Because of history, because of the way the Jews treated it, like because of reality, not because of each other's opinions. And yeah, the Christians. canon, the canon of the Bible is a theological uh, point or argument to make, not so much historical, I would say, because God, before even I would say making the earth, He envisioned how many books there would be in Scripture before they even written down. So, when they appear, when they're created, when they're written down, excuse me, by the apostles, then. Christians recognize, oh, this is the word of God and not the secret book of John over there, which is, talks about some garbage that has nothing to do with the Old Testament. So yeah, there's just a, recognize it with the spirits. Right. God, we're, we're all agreeing that God inspired some books and that there's a finite number of them. And so which ones are they, right? And then oh, also yeah. that Christians would have seen them because God would have revealed them to Christians. So they're clearly widely accepted books, right? So are they the 66 that everybody accepts or are they plus some of the Apocrypha? That's really what scripture comes down to. Not like, mm -hmm. oh no, is the Wizard of Oz scripture? Like we're not, we're not that at a loss. Learn that truth from other Christians and so on and so on. Moreover, James says in his book, Scripture Alone, infallible teaching is not derived from errant foundations. That's how he argues that God gives us a sacred truth through an inerrant Bible. Infallible teaching is not derived from errant foundations, which means if the church is the foundation of our knowledge of an infallible canon, it's how we know that this proposition is true. It's not. And and James White should really blast that one out of the park. I don't know that he, he has in prior debates, did in a prior sola, sola scriptura debate. I don't think he does it here either. So maybe he, he really doesn't rebuttal all these points. Maybe you're right, Sebastian. Maybe he doesn't rebut some of these points, but he really should blast that old. one. He's too old. He's got the gray in his beard. Um, he really should blast that one out of the park because the church is not the thing that divines canon. Like this, and Trenhorn knows this one too, whatever. I, this one's not a dishonest speak back tactic. I believe he believes this point, but the church didn't define scripture. It doesn't define scripture for us. Clearly it doesn't because Protestants reject the Catholic church and still accept scripture, which the Catholics are like, Bwah? well, the way you do that is respecting scripture and not the church, right? Or the, the organization, the fake church. So we got the church decided on scripture because it was scripture, not because we're the church and we're going to define scripture. So we accept scripture, not because the church accepts scripture, but because it is scripture. So scripture exists outside of the church. We, the church is not the grounds for scripture. Repeat that again for the people in the back. The church is not the basis for scripture. 
then under his own view, the church must be infallible in at least some respects. Ridiculous. Which contradicts sola scriptura. Okay, not a not a shared proposition, right? He, he builds another framework that has a non shared He knows, and this one he does know, it's a non-shared proposition. So it's a, it's a bad framework. Um, a lot of bad debaters build frameworks like that, and I would say some good ones build them like that. The good ones that build frameworks with non-shared uh, fundamentals in them um, like that one, are people who are looking not to win an argument for the sake of truth, right? They're just looking to win an argument. Um, so they, they shove non-shared propositions in there. If you were really trying to convince your opponent or the audience, you would only use shared agreements inside your framework. But he doesn't. Like James White doesn't. He knows, he knows full and well that James White does not agree that the church is the foundation of scripture. So he, why is he even giving this logical proof? Because the... Framework is flawed. Anyways, I would further say he would even him, uh, him. Other Catholics might say that the Catholic Church is the one who gave the Bible, and then they'll tell that to the Eastern Orthodox or the Pops <laughs> and see how they react. Yeah, like we gave the Bible to you, fool. Finally, there are similar infallible rules of faith not found in Scripture, like divine revelation ended in the apostolic age, or there are no more living apostles. It, it. Those aren't infallible. Like, what are you talking about? Infallible? There are no more living apostles? Like, why, why would you call that? On what grounds do you call that infallible? I guess by the authority of the church or something like that. But those aren't rules that I would call infallible. I agree with them. I don't think that there is, there's apostles today. I do not believe canon has continued. However, that's because of the lack of canon. <laughs> you know, it's because of the lack of the apostles. I would point, I would look around and go, no apostles. Therefore, no more apostles, right? I would look around and go, no more canon, so no extra books to the canon. Like, canon hasn't continued. Um, those are infallible statements. Those are just logical observations looking at shared facts. That's the exact same way we come to the principle of sola scriptura. We look around and go, no, there are infallible rules of faith, except for scripture. Uh, the, the rule in itself didn't descend from the skies. It wasn't given in scripture, um, but they are evident reality that we actually agree on. Like, we look around and we go, Oh, yeah, there is no more canon. Like the Catholic Church looks around and says, yep, no more canon. They look around and go, yep, no more apostles. So we all agree on these points. Um, we should also agree on the fact that they aren't infallible. They're just, they're like derived, agreed upon realities. Mm -hmm. These also show sola scriptura is false. My third and final argument involves scriptural Backup number four. Efficiency. It goes like this. If sola scriptura were true, then scripture would teach that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith. Whoa, deja vu. Scripture does not teach that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith. Therefore, sola scriptura is false. Now, in teaching this, I'm not saying that premise one, the Bible has to verbatim say the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith, but it has to contain that proposition, or it has to be logically derived from truths that are explicit in Scripture. We can do that oh, for the day. Oh, big yikes. Big, big yikes there, because he's going to, he just said, you know, just it needs to be derived not verbatim, and then when James White tries to obviously say, here's where it's derived, it's not verbatim, where is it? Come on, James, where, where is it? Well, the debates? Look for that, right? That's kind of a challenge he's giving here. Um, fair, fairly enough, I think he's giving the challenge. James, if you want to take this point down, show me where in scripture um, it's not. And then, then it's up to us judging when Trent Horn says it's not yeah. verbatim, right? I... Don't see a lot of difference between this point, number four, and his first point. So maybe it's really only three points. Um, maybe he doesn't have a backup fourth point here. I guess he's saying that 
so scriptura arguers use the first timothy verse and say that all scripture is sufficient for equipping the man and if scripture doesn't have sola scriptura in it then you must not have to believe in sola scriptura to be fully equipped and therefore you don't need to believe in sola scriptura um but then <laughs> it's like a self-eating snake right snake eating its own tail and that if you really believed timothy that said that all scripture is fully sufficient you are assenting to sola scriptura so you don't need to then also believe in so like you are assenting like it is you're admitting then like this whole point is admitting sola scriptura is true so i feel like although it doesn't look very different from point one if what i'm gathering from it is that it's looking to the timothy verse and saying if that's true then there is no such thing as sola scriptura it's like admitting that that timothy does argue for sola scriptura this point right here if it's, if it's what i'm thinking is is high-fiving james white on his one of his main points which was that timothy says that scripture is perfect for making you um have the, the you properly whatever it is properly equipped for for every good work yes yeah that the bible may not say jesus claims to be god uh lord jesus says i am god but in the bible jesus is yahweh that can be proven but the Bible does not say the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith or anything logically deduced from that. Now, in his book, The Roman Catholic Controversy, James wrote, that which is not found in Scripture, either directly or by necessary implication, is not binding upon the Christian. And in his book, Scripture Alone, he writes, all a person must believe to be a follower of Christ is found in Scripture and in no other source. That means in order for sola scriptura to be binding on Christians, James must show the doctrine is taught in scripture or logically deducible from scripture and not merely blindly inferred from his own opinions about okay but the, the reason james white gives that rule is from timothy from scripture so that like if you believe in the authority of him to say that scripture is sufficient that comes from scripture so it is it is perfectly sound of theological items but he can't do that because James has already admitted sola scriptura was not valid when the Bible was being written. It was not valid during times of revelation. So that means the Bible cannot teach sola scriptura in the present tense. So in order to prove this, he has to produce a Bible passage that prophesies the future paradigm of sola scriptura for the church. And if he can't do that, then he can't prove sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is really fundamentally based on the word of God being sound and sufficient, right? Um, which is what scripture is anyways, the word of God. And so I, I think... Part of the problem here is that James White has uh, has acquiesced to scriptura, written word of God, was not always the rule of faith for the time that it wasn't written down, right? When the apostles were still speaking it as it was written down, but the word of God was still always the the primary rule of faith, right? The only infallible rule of faith, and now the only word of God we have is from scripture. So that's that's where sola scriptura is from. So I would say that the the principle that requires us to believe sola scriptura was still the one valid rule of faith even in the time of the apostles, even though scripture wasn't complete yet, was that the word of God is the infallible rule of faith, the only infallible rule of faith. All right. Uh, well, as I said, I'll address more of James's arguments in my next rebuttal. But right now, I'm going to go through three faulty ways that Protestants try to get sola scriptura from the Bible. This will overlap a little bit with, with what James has said so far. Here's the first one. Jesus judged tradition by scripture in Mark 7 and Matthew 15, and so Jesus affirmed sola scriptura. 
Gotta gotta appreciate him anticipating some of Trent's arguments. James tried to do the same, and Trent didn't use a lot of the arguments that James was talking about. Like he talks about Theonustas, the word meaning God breathed. Trent has before this debate happened made a lot of stink about what that means, and it doesn't really mean what Protestants think it means. But he's he doesn't have that at all in his opening statement. So James White like preps things that Trent never argues for, whereas James White uses pretty classic text that Trent is now going to address in his opening statement actually a pretty big win uh, this is a good opening statement tactic from uh, Trent that works out preempting his opponent's uh, arguments the word scripture is not mentioned in these passages the word scripture is not in the passages that James is citing <laughs> would be a great point um if if scripture was in those passages but it, it is in those passages so it's it's a bad point but uh would be great if it was true in the Bible, the term word of God primarily, if not entirely, refers to what Yahweh, his prophets, and his apostles vocally proclaim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I know we're doing James White's job for him here, uh, post-mortem, but... <laughs> no post-mortem of the debate. But, it, like, that's... The James, he did, in his opening statement, James did say that. Now, Trent prepared his opening statement before hearing James, but the... The word of God is scripture. Like that's what he argues Jesus says when he tells the Pharisees in this exact referenced thing, um, or it tells the Sadducees, so not the exact reference thing, but Jesus tells the Sadducees, did you not read what God spoke to you, right? The speaking and the reading, they're one and the same. James is assuming that when Jesus mentions the word of God, he's referring to the written words of the Old Testament as the standard being used. But as I said, that's not how the phrase yes. is commonly used in scripture. It, it Commonly, what are you talking about? Like... <laughs> the, the, the two times we have Jesus talking about the scriptures in this way are to the Sadducees and to the Pharisees. And to the Sadducees, he literally says, right? Have you not read what God spoke to you? Says he's rebutting, he's rebutting uh, Trent's point here. Jesus told the Pharisees they contradicted the very words God spoke to Moses that are recorded in Exodus 3 and Leviticus 20. It's about God's message, not the exact medium he used to communicate it. As if we were defending books instead of the word of God. Of course, we're defending the message behind, like in the scriptures. Of course, we're defending the message inside the scriptures, not the scripture, not the paper itself, you madman. Like a passage in Matthew 15 is a textual variant where it is rendered the command or law of God instead of word of God. This isn't an example of sola scriptura. It's an infallible magisterium or a teaching office, Christ's teaching, correcting the Pharisees' mistaken interpretation of God's law in the Old Testament related to vows. So this does not prove sola scriptura. Here's the next one. Paul says scripture equips the man of God to perform every good work. Therefore, scripture is all Christians need. Now, Catholics can agree that scripture contains all the materials of divine revelation, a material sufficiency of scripture. But that doesn't mean it's our only infallible rule of faith. How do you put all the materials together to get a correct and complete theology? And Protestants, uh, James has said, well, soul, committed sola scriptura Protestants do agree scripture does equip Maybe not everyone who says they're a Protestant, but committed sola scriptura Protestants, it does equip them to do every good work. I would call that the no true Protestant fallacy. That there are, if a Protestant disagrees on an important issue with James, oh, well, he's not really using sola scriptura. And I can give you some examples, I would say, of real true Protestants who committed to sola scriptura that are not equipped to do every good work. For example, is it a good work to help babies get to heaven? Well, James would say baptism does nothing to achieve that goal. And as a Calvinist, we don't really know what to do about getting babies to heaven. Whereas our gracious Lutheran host would disagree and say infant baptism is the good work the word prepares us for to get babies. But what's odd here, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Sebastian. I was going to say, even, 
I understand that Luther had this different position with baptism, but ultimately he believes it's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ what saves you, whether you're baptized or not. So they would insist on baptizing babies, same with Presbyterians, but that's not literally what sends you to heaven. It is Jesus Christ. And notice we're at a Lutheran church. I don't think it's a loss on either of us that, we're at, that they're doing this at a Lutheran church that is friendly to James White, not to Trent. So the, James White actually, this, his point is proving true that even on these issues, because it's a sola scriptura church, Presbyterians and Lutherans and Baptists all actually get along and consider each other's brothers and agree on the tenets, right? Because they are sola scriptura. Whereas we all excommunicate the United Methodists who have who have explicitly abandoned Sola Scriptura. They don't, they say it, stay, they do not believe in Sola Scriptura and they deny the gospel. So we would say these things, um, we believe that scripture can equip you to, to handle all these issues, the baby baptism one and all the rest that he's going to bring up. But clearly we have like vast commun- communion with each other. That's what James was arguing is that Sola Scriptura churches have vast communion with each other versus non solo scriptura churches and i don't know if it's relevant but for me like the presbyterian church i'm attending to they're more than happy to have me there right and become a member too so yep here's another one identify which denominations are christian james scripture definitely does that he's saying that some christians interpret scripture differently um but like yeah, <laughs> the, their argument isn't that all Christians read Scripture properly. The argument is that if you were to read it properly, Scripture is infallible. It says Catholicism mm-hmm. preaches a false gospel, so it's not Christian. But many other sola scriptura Protestants disagree with him and believe that Catholicism is another Christian denomination. So does the Word of God equip the man of God? It, the, the, okay. I, when it was fully read by James, it, the full quote here from Second Timothy is that it is has the capacity to, right? It has, it's able to equip the man of God for every good work. So he, Trent is arguing, but it didn't. You know, like Jimmy over in the corner still believes in aliens. Um, okay. <laughs> the, the scripture wasn't promising that everybody would have perfect knowledge, which obviously we don't. The scripture is arguing that you will have... Um, you can't, you could have had an, all right, if you were wise enough to read the scriptures well, you would have had the right knowledge to know that, that aliens aren't real or about infant baptism or whatever else. And that we shouldn't be making um, things good works if they aren't found in scripture. So when Trent asks, is getting babies to heaven a good work? We would say, I, I, as a Baptist, I would say no, because scripture doesn't talk about it. So it's not, it's not a good work. And those who say it is good work aren't being sola scriptura when they talk about it because it's not in scripture. To be able to know what denominations are Christian and which are not, it seems that sola scriptura Protestants don't agree on that. Also, we have the issues of salvation. We have Protestants firmly committed to sola scriptura who believe salvation can be lost, who believe that if it's lost, you were never saved to begin with, or Protestants who are free grace theologians who say you could become an apostate and you would still go to heaven. That's a... But, okay. Uh, wait, wait, so... oh, sorry. That's a heretic. I know, I guess. Uh, what's so weird here to me, and I, uh, this one I don't think he's doing dishonestly either, is that he's not arguing that we can't know truth. But this sounds like he's arguing you can't know truth because Catholics also have disagreements over major issues, right? And they have the two streams. You know, they got the, the scriptures and the authority of the church, and they still argue 
over truth and things just like this, right? They argue over which Christian denominations are truly Christian. They do. Pretty evidently, pretty openly, right? The Pope says that Muslims are saved and Trent probably does too, but some Catholics would say that that they're not saved. Um, Equally, some Catholics would say that you can't lose your salvation. They're, They're odd, you know, they're against official Catholic teaching, but so are the ones that say that Muslims can be saved and those are pretty influential these days. So we both have people who disagree with each other. Are you arguing that we just, that we have no infallible rules because we have disagreements within denominations? Like clearly you don't think that it invalidates your infallible rules. So why would it invalidate ours? The serious issue where Bible only Christians disagree and scripture is not equipped them to find the right answer to that. All right, here's the next one. Scripture is inspired by God, God breathed, ontologically unique, etc. Uh, James is arguing that if a thing is theopneostos, then that thing is God speaking, so it has infallible authority. He also claims nothing else is theopneostos, only Scripture has infallible defined authority. But this assumes being theopneostos is essential to being infallible, which the Bible never teaches. The context of verse 16 doesn't make sense of this interpretation. I'll get into that a little bit later. What's interesting, when you go back in the ancient church, that's not how, this is not how the word was used, theopneostos. MacDonald, for example, who I cited earlier, says the scriptures were not the only ancient writings that were believed to be inspired by God. Generally speaking, in the early church, that here? Generally speaking, in the early church, the common word for inspiration was used not only in reference to the scriptures, but also of individuals who spoke or wrote the truth of God. He goes on to say, there is no evidence that the early church confined inspiration to an already past apostolic age or even to a collection of sacred writings. Bruce Metzger, another conservative Protestant scholar, says the Christians of the early centuries did not think that inspiration had ceased with the last book of the New Testament. The writings of the church fathers, letters from ecumenical councils, even epitaphs in the early church, these were called theopneostos. In fact, so this shows that word was not restricted to just infallible rules of faith. Is Trent arguing that the letters of Clement are inspired letters? Because I don't think he is, right? He wouldn't He wouldn't call First Clement inspired. So, But he's quoting Metzger here, saying, the Christians of the early church did not think that inspiration had ceased with the last of the book of the New Testament. So are you are, are you arguing that there's more canon? Because otherwise you also disagree with those early Christians. Like, uh, the PowerPoint scattershot is effective in that he had four points. He said they were three, but they were really four points. Um, and now he's got three other points that aren't really points. They're like preparatory responses to his points. So he's got seven points so far to react to all with like deep quotes, right? So then you have to like detail, talk, tell all these quotes and do all this. We're having to do it with pauses. Um, James is going to have to do it in a 10 minute rebuttal. It, really hard to respond to. It's a classic debate tactic. I don't think it's an effective debate tactic because although a judge would say you win, right? You had all these points and they weren't rebutted. And the audience is left going, they're, they're overwhelmed with points. And I don't think anybody that, that heard this presentation for the first time would be able to say, um, what convinced me was point number seven. They'd probably be like, I don't know, there were so many points in there and like this one was good, right? I don't think they forget all the points because there's so many points. It's, it's, I don't think it's a good debate tactic if you're looking to convince people. I think it's a good debate tactic if you're looking to just be declared the winner on the scorecard. Which is required for James's argument. Finally, Jesus, breathed, the God-man, breathed on the apostles in John 20, 23. Why aren't the apostles and their successors theopneostos? Especially since 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. I'm sorry, why aren't these things, the church, an infallible rule of faith? And I'll talk to explain more. Oh my goodness. Hold on. Hold on. Even when Peter gets, as he would say, breathed on by Jesus, didn't Peter commit 
an obscene act of only eating with Jews and, not, and excluding the Gentiles. So the infallible Peter made a, a mistake. Yeah, and also, Deus means breathed out by God, and these, these men were not breathed out by God. They, had, they were breathed on by God, which is different. Yeah. yeah. So my next address, thank you. So there you go, the two openings. It's been a while. It was long. Um, we'll listen to each one of their rebuttals, but uh, otherwise we're just going to listen to the whole debate. I think there's two rebuttals. There's cross-examination. Actually, it's a good time to pause, Sebastian. What do you think is more productive, cross-examination or rebuttals? I think cross-examination because okay. you get to finer points and you get more you get more out of the debate. I think it's also much more interesting to watch. Okay. We then listen to the debate on your own if you want to see their rebuttals because they do rebut each other. Um, so James addresses these points of Trent and Trent addresses some of the points of James. I will spoiler alert you. Trent does not appoint that he does not rebut James opening statement or any of his actual points. He rebuts James rebuttals of his points. So uh, not a good look. I don't like that either. He, he, so I don't think he wins any rebuts there because he only rebuts James' rebuttals, which not typically how you do debate. And then likewise, you, James um, doesn't get to all trans points. So that's that's how rebuttals go. Then they go to cross-examination, which means they each get some amount of time, I think five minutes, to ask the other one a question, and then it goes the other one to ask the questions to him. Oh, and a spoiler alert, because we're not going to get to it in this episode, the closing statements bad they did not they james addresses some of trent's um but trent does not address any of james points he just rehashes his original arguments and does not address any of their rebuttals any of the act it's like as, as if the debate had never happened um so not a good closing statement watch it if you're watching the debate but not worth watching here let's go to cross While it's still fresh in people's minds, you said that Ignatius said uh, that you had to have bishop, priest, and deacon. Where did he ever refer to priest? He uses the term presbyteri. That came up in rebuttal. Sorry, you're going to miss some stuff here. Uh, and the common uh, translation of that is priest. Common translation of that when? Just if you read translation of the church, fine. He says Epis episcopoi, presbyteri, diaconoi. Okay, and, but he does not use hieros for priest, does he? No, he doesn't, but that, I'm not arguing for the priesthood tonight. He does say, in order to be a valid church, you must have these three distinct orders, and they're not Which the were all found in the New Testament. Correct, but their meanings okay. are interchangeable during that time. It, 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 priest means something different in Roman Catholicism than presbyteros. That's just, just what I wanted to take about that. Uh, you then just said something about uh, John 7, 53 through 811, as if this is, uh, some people don't accept this, as this is somehow relevant to, to what? I, because Roman Catholicism uses the same right, critical Greek text that we use, to, that, that, that we're using. And they all recognize that the first Greek manuscripts that contain the, the, the Pricabe Adultery right. are from the 5th century. Now, this is from a rebuttal point about the Pricabe Adultery because Trent brings up that Protestants um, argue on whether or not the Pricabe Adultery, that section of John, is supposed to be in there. And so do they really believe in Sola Scriptura because they can't even agree what, what Scripture is in it. Um, similar to his opening statement where he says that um, the early Christians believed that the inspiration was still going on. He doesn't, he doesn't actually believe that, though. Like, he believes the canon closed. So... James is bringing up here, you also, uh, you have the exact same problem with scripture in that you're not sure what to do with Prinkabe Adulterae, and you also call it not in the original manuscripts. So why are you, <laughs> why are you pointing fingers at the Protestants when you have literally the exact same Greek manuscript and you have the exact same question? And, and you believe scripture is infallible. So like, yeah, unless you're saying scripture, scripture is not infallible. What I'm, so what, what I'm saying, referring to? What I, am, what I am saying is that if you do not have an infallible rule to say what is and is not scripture, there's nothing to really prevent you from saying, well, I think only these parts of scripture are inspired or authentic, 
And you could say that certain parts of it are, are not. And, and what's really telling here, and I think this is a great highlight cross-examination moment, is that you see what authority takes precedent for Roman Catholics for Trent here. He is saying that if you don't have the church to tell you what proper scripture is, then you don't have scripture. Guess which authority is higher than the other? The church is higher than the scriptures because the church could say, you know the book of Matthew? Not scripture. You know the book of Mark? Not scripture. You know the prank of adultery? Scripture. So Trent is allowing the church to have authority over scripture, which we would, we, that's, you don't believe that scripture is infallible then. You believe the church is infallible and that the, that scripture is an artifact of the church. So really, Trent doesn't have two infallible sources. He has one, but it's not the scriptures. It's not God. It's the church. And I think that's very telling here. Mm -hmm. If you can say, if you can just, if you can discount certain books of scripture, which happened, you have people in the Reformation casting doubts about the letter of James, for example, constraining it to antilegomena. Why couldn't they do that to parts of scripture? Has Rome defined uh, specifically whether that textual variant, that 12 verse, it's one of the two largest textual variants, has Rome specifically defined? It hasn't infallibly defined it. There's a, there's a general, there's a, just like it did not infallibly define the canon itself until the 17th century. So like all of the points, every single one of the points that Trent brought up about Protestants not being able to agree on scripture fall apart right here. That's why I know that they were given up dishonestly because he, he admits right here readily, not, you know, and he wasn't like coming to it at, at this moment readily that the Catholic church doesn't have positions on the Catholic church hasn't taken a position on the Prince of adultery officially. So why is he bringing it up as a Protestant problem when it is also a Catholic problem? He admits. Sad. Okay. So we're, we're waiting on that. If, if there's enough, if there's enough of a controversy related to it, then the church would wade in. So my point is, even if you're not talking about just specific examples, you can go back to entire books that people who are going to reject them, I would wonder what grounds would you have to say that they can't if they're using their own principled assumptions like you are. Okay, but, but in that specific text, are you simply saying, well, you can believe either way right now? You can what? Believe either way about it right now? About this As text? a Roman Catholic? No, you, you can't believe that either way. I would say that, well, has it been infallibly defined? That would relate to the, the Latin Vulgate and how it was received at the Council of Trent, because you also have uh, Catholic biblical scholars saying that you don't have to believe the Johannine comma, for example, is uh, original to the text. That would relate to how the text has been transmitted to the church's ordinary magisterium. It hasn't been infallibly defined yet. But, it, but yeah. I, well, I would say, I think other theologians would say that it's, it is not infallibly taught, but it is generally taught and accepted that it is a part of sacred scripture. Yeah, the church's authority, you, as a Catholic, you aren't obliged to only believe what the church infallibly teaches. You're obliged to believe what the church teaches, period. Things that are not infallibly taught can be developed and expounded upon later on. Woo, and now you see the problem, the stinky problem with believing in uh, the infallible authority of the church is that apparently they, the infallible church reserves the right to be wrong. <laughs> okay, okay, and you still have to follow them. Um, that's very Mormony, very Mormony. Um, I, so don't give in to the poison. You see the poison it is to have the church as your infallible rule of faith because Trent is the reason he's doing that. He's saying that they, they teach things and you should believe the teachings, but they might not be infallible is because the church is wrong, like all the time, right? They got all the time throughout the centuries, there's something the church is wrong about that they have to correct. And so if you keep the church as your infallible rule of faith, you will be wrong. Unlike scripture, whereas if you kept scriptures, you're infallible rule of faith. You might be wrong, but scripture is not. We're 2,000 years down the road, and you're saying, well, they may get to it? Are we, should we expect it or not? 
It would depend on how the issue is brought up. The church didn't have to define the canon of scripture infallibly until Protestants wanted to throw out, for example, the books of the Old Testament that belonged in the Greek Septuagint Jesus and the Apostles used. Did Cardinal Cayetan want to do the same thing that the, the, the Protestants wanted to do? Yeah, he did because he had a weird fixation on Jerome. He even said that the councils and previous popes have to be subject to Jerome. He had two yes. favorites, Aquinas and Jerome. So he had a weird fixation on Jerome's view of scripture, which is weird because he also treated Aquinas with equal authority and Aquinas did believe in the deuterocanonical books. So you've got Melito, Sardis, you've got Jerome. No. I'm sorry? You got Melito Sardis what? Melito Sardis also rejected those books. No, that's not true. Uh, where, did he, where did he identify them as canon scripture? When you read Melito Sardis's, he's writing extracts. The extracts are about how to use text as an apologetic against Jews. I quote this in my book, The Case for Catholicism. When you read scholars like Ellis and Hanneman, for example, they'll say clearly that the list that Melito is presenting is a list of the Jewish canon at that time, yes. not the Christian canon not how Christians understood the Old Testament. And there are 70 plus citations of the Deuterocanon in the authors before the Council of Nicaea. We get really obscure now. I guess maybe because James is trying to get new material out of, of Trent, just because this type of debate happens uh, a lot, especially for Trent. James is trying to push on unique things, but they're really like uh, uh, obscure, I would call them. And so I don't think they're winning at many points. I think that if James were invested in winning, he would attack would aggressively attack the points presented in the opening statement of Trent and ask him like so do you believe that there was extra canon and why did no then why did you talk about the early church believing there was extra canon like so you don't believe the, the points of your opening presentation that's the kind of cross that I would have liked from James if he was going to win okay. the debate but I think what's indicative here is that James is actually looking to like engage with Trent as a person and then like ask him unique questions and like clarify, uh, truly clarify, not for the sake of winning the debate, um, which is something. I I think that uh, the bloodthirsty one in me would want him to just absolutely eviscerate the opening statement um, and he, he doesn't. So. Mm -hmm. Something would have been useful, I think, would be to bring up not just Cardinal Cayetan because that's pretty close to the Reformation, but Pope Gregory the Great, I think we did an episode on scripture and the canon on, on our show. And even the Pope considered it just good for teaching and instructing and not actually part of the of scripture. Mm -hmm. I think also Trent is, Trent Horn is not, uh, it, not a classic Catholic. So I think what yeah. James is trying to get here is poke where he thinks Trent is weak because Trent is an amorphous blob who changes his doctrine just like the Pope does. He's just more conservative than the current Pope. And so he's trying to poke him there thinking that is going to, yeah. you know, cynically I'm saying that he's poking him there because he thinks it's going to make Trent look squishy because Trent is squishy, but it loses the purpose of the debate and ignores it. It leaves the opening statement unaddressed, which is yeah. not good. And I think James, again, he's old, he's seen this kind of debate before, he's probably thinking that the self, that he already did his rebuttal in the opening statement is already dead because he's seen it die a million times. But in this debate, I don't think it's died yet. Mm -hmm. Before the, yeah, the council, I see it. No, there's no question about that. But As yes, scripture, he was, the word but of God. Yes, he knew what the Jewish canon was and the Jewish canon did not include those books. The Jewish canon at his time after the Bar Kokhba revolt. But I don't care what Jews in his time thought about what scripture was because they didn't even get the New Testament right. Oh, well, I'll remind you that tomorrow night when you talk about uh, Maccabees. But, um, okay. I'm looking forward to, I'm looking <laughs> yes. forward to it. Yes. So, um, when Peter, you, you, you said something about, um, well, let me get to Peter in a second. Let, let's talk about Theonostos first. Um, what do you believe Theonostos means? What it means? Yeah. What, is, what, is, what does it mean? What does it mean today? No, what does it mean when Paul wrote it? What does it mean when Paul wrote it? Yeah. 
Well, it's hard to determine because, as you said, it only appears once in Scripture. There's not even parts where it's broken apart, like we have in our Sinecoites related back to Leviticus. I would say that it means it comes from God, God breathed, but that could mean, it could have a variety of meanings to it. Um, it means it's something that comes from God, God breathes it out, and so it provides uh, spiritual life, it provides spiritual benefit to those who receive it. But there's a wide variety of ways it could be understood. Breathed into scripture, breathed out, a lot of so, so you don't have any problem with the translation God breathed? No, I don't have a problem with the translation. My problem is with the meaning in saying, in order to be an infallible rule of faith, something must be theopneistos. There's there no any? evidence, there's no evidence to hold that Paul believed that, and the early church certainly didn't believe that. Is there anything else that is theonoustos that you can show us from the time of the apostles? Is there, is there anything else that an apostle calls Is there theonoustos? anything else that is theonoustos that you can show us came from the time of the apostles? You mean just what people believed at that time? No. I'm asking that, for... So, so you said what you, the if apostles you, say. If you believe scripture is theonoustos, we possess that today. So yes. That's come down to us, and, and we possess... We, here, here, here's the theonoustos scriptures. So what else is Theonoustos that you can hold up and show me right now uh, that isn't scripture? That people from the time of Paul said was Theonoustos? That you are saying is Theonoustos. What I said was that in the early church, early Christians used that word to describe councils, writings of the fathers. It's used all throughout the early church. Were they quoting from 2 Timothy when they did so? They just, they used the same word. But there were... <laughs> this is going to get lost, but actually it's another, I think it's another good point okay. from James, a worthy point to address. He's asking Trent... What do you think is Theonostos? Like, if you if you agree the Bible's Theonostos, what else is? Try is notice he's avoiding the. I don't know why he's avoiding the question. Because, I guess because there is nothing. But like, he Trent should just say if he if he believes his points from the opening statement that the early church believed that that there were other things that were Theonostos. Say that you agree with the early church, right? Say I guess you agree. With the, yeah, point out something new, right? The glories of Mary is Theonostos. I don't know. Um, but like, at least say that you agree with uh, that your points from the opening statement that the early church believed there's other things that were theonostos. Um, but he doesn't even say that. He says the early church thought they were things that theonostos. Then say, I believe what the early church believed. Like, do you, do you believe it? Um, and the, the problem there is that uh, the early church didn't believe there were other things there with theonostos. And so when he says that the early church quotes things um, and, and refers to them as theonostos, what James is going to get into and what he just said is did they really because they didn't really it was when they would quote second timothy about the scriptures and so it wasn't actually talking about other things right it was it was always talking about this is, the early church was always talking about the scriptures when they used the word theonostos for many people who didn't even have paul's writings in that early time period i'm talking about so the, time of like using the works of gregory of nyssa centuries later okay. talks about them being theonostos okay in commenting on second timothy no. <laughs> right like so there's another it's a, it's a weird loophole. It happens all the time when you're like fighting over church history. And that's why I don't like fighting over church history unless you, unless the, the fight is that because Gregor Nisa, Trent claims, Trent claims that the words of Gregor Nisa were considered Theonoustos. But James is insinuating here that they aren't, that, that people called the words of Gregory of Nisa Theonoustos when Gregory of Nisa was quoting from Second Timothy about the word of Theonoustos. So like, they weren't actually calling Gregory's words the Anastas. They were telling, just talking about the thing that Gregory was talking about, scripture, the Anastas. Leave, leave that aside. Can you show us anything that you possess today that is Theonoustos, that is God-breathed in the way Paul describes the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3? There, the apostles do not, Theonoustos is only used once in scripture, to ref, only used once in the apostolic period 
to describe scripture. That is correct. And it's not okay. used to describe anything else. But it does not follow from that that therefore, in order to be an infallible rule of faith, something might be theotneostos. This, the reason this argument is flawed, I could make a parody argument that goes against that. I could say the apostles never talk about the word of, they don't use the word of God to describe scripture. So that means scripture is not an infallible rule of faith. But that would be a hasty assumption. Scripture still has authority, even though the apostles don't call it the word of God. Just because something doesn't have a certain term doesn't mean it doesn't have infallible authority. So when Paul speaks of the whole... Now say, clearly, Trent concedes to the point there um, that that nothing but Scripture is God-breathed. Um, great, because one of your opening statement points was that there are other things that are God-breathed. Right? So he, he does eventually lose the point here. Um, and then he says, but it doesn't matter that I lost the point. Well, then why did you bring it up in your opening statement? You know? Like you brought up in your opening statement, one of your many opening statements, that 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 the early church believed that many things were God-breathed. But here you admit on the stand that actually... Only the word of God is God breathed. That's that's why James is pushing it. Holy writings in Second Timothy. Can we identify what they were? They were the Old Testament. Okay. So the Old Testament is Theonustos, according to Paul. Yes. Okay. Is there anything else outside of and if you want to try to just limit it to that, you can, that's fine. Is there anything outside of scripture that is Theonustos? What do you mean that is Theonustos? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's stalling for time he's stalling for time yeah because he knows he, he just admitted honestly you should just like you already admitted on the point so just keep just let it go say you lost the point um and move on right it's only one point but yeah you admitted that there was nothing else to see on he's stalling okay i don't know how much more clearly i, can I already i already answered the question paul only described he describes the old testament as the, theopneostos it's great and, and so it, and so it's able to do what it's able to make you wise. He said the Old Testament was able to make you wise unto salvation to Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean you need the Old Testament alone. And it was also able to make the man of God able to reprove, rebuke, exhort, and everything, and to do every no, good it says, work. No, it says it's helpful. It says it's helpful to teach but it says, and correct, which doesn't make sense in the context either to say it's God infallibly, divinely speaking to you right now, so it's helpful when you want to teach people. That's what he says right there. know what Trent is saying here because it's not Catholic teaching, right? It's Trent teaching here because official Catholic teaching is that the scripture is infallible and Trent is saying that Paul is saying that scripture is just helpful. Like, is he, is he really believing that? Like, why is, he, why is he arguing the point if he doesn't actually believe that? I watched the clock. So, so I'll say... You said it before, Michael, that in order to defend the position of the Catholic Church, he is undermining the value of the Word of God. Yeah. And just from a debate perspective, I think we should note that James is okay cross, especially the second half. The first half of that cross-examination, eh, bad. He got into weird stuff, again, poking at like weird stuff that he was just, I think he was just curious what, what transpositions are on things, which, you know, fair enough, I guess, do what you want, it's your debate. But um, for the sake of the debate, I think he should have done more of what he did in the second half of the cross, which the second half of the cross is good. He's pointing at holes in one of the many points that, that Trent, pointed out in his opening statement and so i think he wins on that point like he trying to admits he wins on that point um on that theanustas thing so that's one of the things for the opening statement i think a lot of the other points in the opening statement have yet to be rebutted when they can be rebutted and so this would be the time to press him on it and he just didn't because he wasted time with the stuff he was curious about so could have gone better right that's what i would say it, good ending i think you want a point there which is great but there's a lot of untalked about points that totally could have pressed on which he did not 
we'll see how Trent does. All right. And remember, what both debaters should be doing is trying to either rip a framework down that the person put up incorrectly uh, or answer the other person's framework. So James's framework was show me something else that has equal authority. Um, show me else something like prove to me that something else is equal authority to scripture. And Trent's point was uh, many, <laughs> many things. But one of them was uh, show me when uh, show me that the church had three ways of interpreting God's word or ways of receiving God's word, the apostles, the written word and uh, individual revelation. I don't know what his third one was, uh, but or the authority the church and the authority of the apostles, whatever. He he says, tell me when that changed, right? That's what he's probably going to press James on if he wants to use that strategy. We'll see if he has a good cross. I think a good cross from Trent here would be pressing James on that question. Mm -hmm. All righty, let's see, 10 minutes. James, was Sola Scriptura valid during times of revelation? You've already quoted me saying that it, it can't be because you don't have a Scriptura uh, to be able to have as your final standard. Okay. Now, this is really technical, and, it, and I think we should all note the swap here because um, scriptura means the written word. And so James is being very technical here when he says that it's not a valid rule for faith back then because the word wasn't written yet, right? It was still being written or wasn't distributed or was being spoken actively. Um, but the reason we believe solo scriptura isn't because of the medium of being written, right? The reason we believe it is because it's from God. And so the real principle here is that scripture is the only God's word we have today. And so that's really what sola scriptura means. So sola, that, that principle was, was definitely valid back in the apostles day, right? God's word is the only infallible rule of faith. And so the medium wasn't there yet, um, which is what James is admitting to. But the principle that we hold to today, that we believe God's word and not others' words is, was still valid then. Okay, so there, were there multiple rules of faith, infallible rules of faith, before the death of the apostles? Uh, no. What was the rule of faith? What was this single rule of faith then? Divine revelation found in scripture and what the, the apostles were preaching. So there you are, the principle underlying Sola Scriptura. So during the time of the apostles, divine revelation existed in written. And sorry. Pull, pull that sorry. So you're saying... And, and this, by the way, is, is the proper rebuttal. And I think uh, Trenhorn falls on a big spike here and needs to get out of it because this is the destruction of one of his arguments. The argument that there was three ways of interpreting scripture. James says, no, there's uh, there are three ways of receiving God's word. James says, there was just one, divine revelation. Um, so there was no change. We don't need to show a change. There was only one. And so Trent needs to either totally beat this to death or leave it immediately because it totally defeats his main opening statement proposition. During the time of the apostles, divine revelation existed in written and unwritten forms. Yes. Okay. And you're saying at some point in the future, it only existed in the written form? Yes. When did that happen? After the apostles died. What evidence do you, or did Jesus or the apostles ever say in scripture that after the death of the apostles, this is what would happen? Just like Malachi didn't have to, no. They did not say that. Okay, so Jesus and the apostles never said this divine, this one rule, the divine revelation, they never said in the future it would be confined to the written word alone. Well, again, uh, the, way that, the way that all of the apostles and Jesus used scripture, it was a given that the faith did, was, did, was did I'm they gonna say, I'm going to finish my statement, okay. that the faith is based upon written documents. It was under the Old Covenant, it is under the New Covenant as well. So in, First Thessalonians, in First Thessalonians 2.13, what is called the Word of God? The teaching that Paul had delivered to Thessalonians. Was it written teaching? Uh, he refers to it in verse 15. He says, the things that you were taught... No, 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 First Thessalonians. Okay. So, but, the word but, of, but he makes... That you, it, does he say the Word Can of I God? Can I finish a word, please? Go ahead. In Second Thessalonians, he says, hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth, which is when he was preaching to them, or by what? 
or by letter, which was 1 Thessalonians. So he included both in his summary statement as to what they're to be holding to. In Peter and Paul's final epistles, 2 Timothy and 2 Peter, do they advise their... When you leave a point, just move on. Trent, good for you. Loses the point, moves on. It wasn't even one of his opening statement points, so whatever. You lost the point, but no big deal. But he does lose that one on the attack, so not a good cross so far. Listeners to follow any for written Trent. apostolic authority after their deaths. Well, of course. That's, what, that's the whole point of what Paul is where, saying. Where, where do they say that? Of course, that's the whole point of Paul's... I will say it's not a good look to get exasperated. James White does this a decent amount. It's not his best debate tactic to get like super exasperated, so that's not so good. Words to Timothy he's old. is now leaving Timothy. He is going to direct him to what Timothy can refer to to be able to do what the man of God needs to do, just as he did with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Did he refer to his or other apostles' writings as what Timothy should look to? Um, not specifically, but obviously, given that he had already written First Timothy and that that had equipped Timothy for his work in the ministry, that would be included in it, as I think okay. all Christians... So you're, you're agreeing to time of the apostles, divine revelation is written and unwritten, and then in the future it becomes written only. Yes. Okay, was there any Christian in the early church who said that that happened and it was confined to the written word only? They weren't even discussing it. I'll take, I'll take the anybody, I'll take anybody. Majority, the vast majority, well, I can give you all sorts of, depending on how, how you want to do it. Let's go up to the Council of Nicaea. Why, why only up to the Council of Nicaea? You can give you 300 years, it's a long time. <laughs> yes. Try, try, and, try to keep it question... Okay, yeah, we're trying to. We're um, having too much fun. Uh, we, there's, there's all sorts of, of, of passages I can give you. We can give you Athanasius, we can give you Augustine, all things like that. But you're dealing with a period of time before the canon is fully known within the church. There was a period of time of 400 years between the end of Malachi and the coming of Christ when the canon was formed. The same thing happens with the New Testament. We are not in that time period any longer. And so the question becomes... Were, were there any Christians before Nicaea who said divine revelation was confined to the written word alone, even if we're not exactly sure the limits of that word? All the Christians before Nicaea... I'll take that back because you've got Clement. Clement, quote, Clement of Alexandria quotes a bunch of stuff that we don't even know where it comes from. Um, that does not make it scripture. He may have thought it was scripture. So there were people who did have confusion. But the people we look to who actually formed theology were quoting from scripture they were not quoting from alleged oral traditions being passed down outside of scripture okay so uh, you didn't answer my question was there anyone during the this time period because the question is assuming something that again is not relevant to the time period that we're talking about and that is we're talking about a time period while the canon is actually being formed so it would be like asking me well when did just so the, can, so Justin the canon Martyr didn't even have the, the epistles so christians did not know the canon of scripture until the fourth century christians didn't christians knew the canon of the old testament the, the canon of the new testament the Gospels were very clearly known, and we have the epistles of Paul. But for example, Hebrews, Revelation, um, Second and Third John really. So you need to also notice here that Trent is pivoting because he he really lost his first point. If you remember way back to his opening statement, his first point was that you had these three streams of ways of getting divine revelation, and that that never changed. And James like immediately has that point face plant by saying there is only ever one so he, he destroys the framework like he said he, i said he should and um, the framework was we all agree that there were three ways of receiving divine revelation and now there's only one so um, when did it change somebody should have been like oh it's such a big deal that it now changed they should have talked about it and james is like well they wouldn't have because it wasn't a big deal because it was always one <laughs> way and so trent has left that and now he's going to point number two if you've noticed which is Christians, how do you even know scripture? Like they didn't even know scripture back then. So um, when they were devising the canon, why didn't they talk about only devising the canon out of written word? Well, I, 
obviously by nature of devising canon from the apostles, it's going to be written word because the apostles were dead, right? So like when they're debating about, they're only quoting scripture, they're only quoting written word, of course. And that's what James says. The only guy he knows that doesn't quote written word is Clement. And he said, he's a, he's a, he's a one-off, right? So we would assume that he's wrong. Um, and Trent, that's, that's what Trent is doing here again. So he's, he's moved on. He lost point one. I think he lost it definitively and he's smoothly, very smoothly actually transitioning into point two. And to note, I think he lost the point here. He lost the point. He's going on to point two. These short books, there were people who lived and died that did not even know those books existed during that time. Good period. Yeah. Good thing Trent has backup arguments because he just lost the first one, I guess, here in Cross. So the, we don't live in that time period. So are you saying the people of God did not know the canon of the New Testament until the fourth century? It took development. Yes, well, yeah, fourth century when you have the, okay. the, the finish. Now, you do have a Muratorian fragment from about 175 that gives you the vast majority of it. So yes, there are books that simply, it took time to copy books and to distribute books. So the people of God knew the canon of the New Testament because that's what the church taught in the fourth century. Is that how we know the canon of the New Testament today? No, the, the, when you say what the church taught in the fourth century, uh, the church itself recognized that was a passive action on their part in receiving the canon and receiving what is in fact mm -hmm. scripture. And of course- Super important there. It's what we talked about, right? The canon existed before the church. The church just recognized the canon. They didn't make the canon. The, the, early the people, let's say the people of God ref collectively came to understand the canon of scripture in the fourth century. Yes. Okay. Just like they had, just like, did the people, just of, like under the Old Testament uh, as well. Did the people of God collectively in the fourth century misunderstand parts of divine revelation? What, what do you mean? You mean, are you, are you asking if every writer in the fourth century is inspired? No, if they generally, for example, bat, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration was universally believed then. Did the people of God collectively get that doctrine wrong? I obviously wrong? dispute that uh, and, and reject that. Tertullian is a good example of the development of baptismal theologies. Uh, How about the sacerdotal priesthood by the fourth century? Uh, again, something that developed over time and that is far removed from the actual New Testament teaching, yes. So was it generally believed in the fourth century? Generally, yes. Okay, so the people of God were wrong about that, though, yes, right? Yes, they were. How do you know they weren't wrong about the canon? Uh, because God inspired, since he gives inspired scripture, he is then going, since, since there's a purpose for this for the church. Notice here, I, I don't really know who Trent is arguing against here because uh, James White doesn't believe, Protestants don't believe that the church has that kind of authority to make canon, to, to make statements like this and so trent is saying if you don't believe that the church had authority to say all these other things right the sacerdotal priesthood or or pedobaptism um shouldn't a baptismal regeneration shouldn't um you also not believe that the church could have could have made canon and james is like i don't believe the church made canon so who is he arguing <laughs> against right himself i guess or like i don't know some unknown party who thought the church created canon but not the other um authoritative teachings yeah, so it, again, it is God, the one who made the canon, and then the omnipotent God who can create the universe, he can communicate whatever he wants clearly to any people, his children especially, and they just recognize, like, oh, this is the word of God by the Holy Spirit. You just look at it and say, oh, yeah, this is the word of God. Whereas in baptismal regeneration and the priesthood, those were mistakes done by humans. Those weren't instituted by God. Then God is going to make sure the church possesses what He has given so much effort to giving us. Did He make sure? Worth. Did do, he, I, do I get to finish a sentence, or is it just simply going to be this all the way through? Go ahead. James does this a decent amount. I really hate that attitude. I really hate it. It's a way of trying to like check your opponent because he keeps interrupting, which he does keep interrupting. But like, I don't know. Who cares? His cross. 
I, people do it like a uh, whiny woke people do it. So I don't like it when James does it either. <laughs> okay, thank you. God is going to put out the exact same amount of effort to make sure that his people know what he's inspired as he did in inspiring it, just like in the Old Testament. That's the paradigm. Yeah. And the paradigm of the Old Testament. Was that? I'm saying there it is. The God who took all the time and effort to communicate a message to humans, he's going to make sure that humans can receive that message. Mm -hmm. Demonstrates that God can do that without infallible authorities. Did God ensure that the people of the second century after Christ knew what the New Testament was? They're in the process of when that was being revealed. But again, how could they? There was, there's no internet. There's no printing presses. It takes time for copying these things. You're saying the omnipotent God couldn't find another way without the internet to make sure people 100, 200, or 300 years after Jesus knew the canon? No, what I'm saying is God pause, has always pause. worked in history just... For context, there were the two biggest disputed books, actually three, Revelation, Hebrews sometimes, and the third epistle of John. Can you believe in Jesus Christ and have eternal life without those books? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Can, can you live a good Christian life without those three books? Yeah, you can. Yep. You don't really need them to know the identity of God or know how to be saved, how to be a Christian. Those are good to have. They're very good to have and study for sure Hebrews. They're just not absolutely in that sense, in the way that trend is trying to say, it's like, oh, this is devastating. You're, you will not be a true Christian without the third letter of John, for example. No, I mean, it's, it's a big loss for those people in that time, but you can still be a Christian without them. Right, and it, what it most importantly doesn't do is concede the point that the church was the one that defined the canon, which was yeah. his whole, again, he set up a framework that said, you agree that the church defines the canon, so if the church defined the canon, then it's a higher authority than scripture, which is a, a pretty telling of Trent's position, but also not something that Trent White actually, or that James White, Trent White, gosh, that would be <laughs> the bastard child, uh, that James White actually believes, which he's made clear he does not believe it. So again, another point lost really for Trent, although um, this one's not so devastatingly. He did in the Old Testament, and just as he passed on the Old Testament with scrolls, and very few people even had possession of those things. He worked in history. It has nothing to do with his omnipotence. It has to do with his sovereignty and his choice of doing those things. Let's go with my second argument. So the proposition, the 66 books in the Protestant Bible are the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. Yes. Is that proposition true? Yes, because they are the only things the church possesses that are theonistic. Is, is that proposition infallibly true? Well, true and infallible, what, what would the infallible truth Fine. be? Is that, proposition, is that true proposition an infallible rule of faith for the church? these 66 books well i'm not sure how you're using rule of faith rule of faith tells us how we're to how we're to live we're talking about how the church knows what christ's voice is how does christ communicate his authority to his people is if a rule of faith is something that tells us how to live why wouldn't the proposition you are to look to only these books as the inspired word of scripture isn't that a way to tell us how to live that's something that god worked out over time just as he did with the old testament and once that's he and once he got that and it's done now right he did it i'm sorry yes okay um, he did that. So this proposition is true. Are you denying that it's an a rule of faith for the church, this proposition? The scriptures are the rule of faith, not propositions about scripture. Where do the scriptures say what is scripture? And th that's, that's the point, by the way. That's the one that, that dest it destroys point two of, he calls it point two. It is point two of his opening statement. I guess the scriptures not being definable was point three, hidden point three, but the, that exact phrase destroys his point too, which is that 
the the fact that the Bible that sola scriptura is infallible, but it's not found in the Bible, and you're saying that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith, and therefore you've got these conflicting logical conundrums. James says it right there. Sola scriptura is not an infallible rule of faith. It's something derived from the infallible rule of faith, and it is true about it. So, like, it's not infallible in and of itself, but it is. The, the, find me the competing rule, right? Um, and that's that's what destroys Trent's second argument. So we've got three point losses for Trent. I think you just have to be careful. And and James doesn't like punch him in the face with these. Plus, it's on he, he's lost all three points on his attack, whereas he lost like one tiny minor section of his third point under James' attack. So James' attack just wasn't good enough. And Trent's attack against James is totally failing. It's undermining his own positions. But because he's not on defense, he's on attack. James isn't able to like kill these as easily and show that Trent is losing. So I think the fact that Trent has lost three out of his four points here is, is just not as evident because he's on the attack. Scripture, or even give us a general guideline of how to know what is and isn't scripture. Same objection the Jews could have made to Jesus and it wouldn't have worked with him either. I'm just you're missing the paradigm. You're, you're, well, when, if you're going to use an argument that refutes Jesus' own argumentation, I'm just going to say, I'll let you have it. Five seconds. No. I'll be... There you go. So they go again uh, with Cross, and then they have the closing statements. But I think you got an idea of how Cross went. That's kind of how Cross went. Was James wasn't aggressive enough on the right things, and uh, and Trent lost <laughs> on his attacks. But right. But if you're not if you're not listening closely like that, you're not going to tell that his his own arguments were destroyed there by James kind of passively. Like I don't even know if James knew that he was dismantling aggressively Trent's points because he was just responding to them. So I think Trent did the right thing in his cross as far as he went out, his, he brought his opening statements and asked James to address them and James destroyed them, um, but not like in a drop the mic moment. And so the audience, part of the emotion of a debate is you want to be like, dang, got him. And those just weren't like, dang, got him moments. Um, usually you get those when you're on the attack. Yeah. Now, after going through this, Michael, with this evaluation, yeah, I see now how Trent did poorly but he handled it so well he just transitioned yep. to the next point so when lost point you just being embarrassed. <laughs> yep exactly and if you're going to lose a debate it's how you to lose a debate right you want to you want to gently do it so that you lose it so well that people thought you won and mm-hmm. i said we can critique james white for not being aggressive enough here but i still think that uh i, I think this cross shows that trent actually lost because his points were rebutted um, but kind of um, in spite of James White, not because of James White, because James White is, isn't is rebutting them actively, right? He's rebutting them in response to Trenhorn. And so I think if, if, if they have a really careful debating judge to, to view it that way, um, because James usually only score rebuttals if the person is actively rebutting, and this was not actively rebutting, but he does rebut the points of Trenhorn. So I think Trenhorn's all four of his points are rebutted, but James White doesn't do it in a showy way. And so it's, it, you could call the debate a tie, but I do think it's one right here in this exact cross. Um, not because of James White, but because of Trent Horn. Yeah, there you go. So I thought it was good. Um, it's not super flashy, nor honestly, the first uh, debate that Trent Horn and James White did like 10 years ago was also not flashy. Um, very much like this, where both have... Um, seemingly good points trent is equally cool as a cucumber i think james white's a little cooler on that front too maybe a little younger and so 
it comes across just like that. We are like, I don't know who won. You really have to like dive deep. And that's what I did 10 years ago or not 10 years ago now, but five years ago, whatever, whenever I watched it, um, I had to dive deep. I was like, well, which like, I want to research these two sides because both of them sound reasonable. Um, and that's, that's how this debate came across. But again, if you're, if you're reasonable and you know, your scriptures here and you're looking at the cross, all of Trent's points were refuted on his own attack, um, which honestly, if you're gonna, again, if you're going to lose a debate, lose it on the attack lose it by being cool, lose it by transitioning like this. So kudos to Trent for how he handled losing the cross. Mm -hmm. Any closing comments, Sebastian? I would say that this issue is even 500 years after the Reformation still just as relevant particularly with the current leadership in the Catholic Church and also, you know, the Eastern Orthodox, especially in Patriarch of Russia, calling for a crusade against Ukraine, you know, the church calling for a crusade. So when you have other sources of a divine authority, infallible authority, besides the word of God, it leads you to some strange, if not dark or unhinged places like, like this, yeah. the glories of Mary. So that is why we look to what God has communicated to us and we have certainty through the Holy Spirit what is the voice of Christ. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I mean, it sounds like Jesus knows what he's doing. So that's why we look to him and him alone and what he has communicated through the Holy Spirit for, for teaching, instruction, and to be fully equipped to live out the good Christian life that the Lord has appointed us to live. Amen. I'll also say there's a second debate, Purgatory. We're not going to do it just because these are such long episodes, <laughs> but it is a little bit more fun to watch because Purgatory is a way worse issue for Trent to defend. Trent is still cool as a cucumber, so don't expect the fireworks that you might see in other debates. However, the long story short of that one is that Trent says Purgatory um, is an accepted Protestant position and therefore we we don't even need to debate is essentially what he says he says that that purgatory isn't what the catholic church has taught for thousands of years it's actually just the fact that people who don't build with gold um i.e they don't do that great of works as christians here in life um, will not inherit gold in heaven and isn't that a kind of punishment and isn't that what we're talking about with purgatory and james is like no <laughs> uh, i agree with that and that's not purgatory so like that's you, if you redefine purgatory as not purgatory, then I guess purgatory is real. But if you define purgatory as what it has always been defined as, which is punishment satisfying the sins of life so that you can be purged of them in heaven, then uh, yeah, that's not real. So Trent like immediately loses that debate because he redefines purgatory as something that, that they both agree on. So like there's not even a debate. Um, so I guess it's a little funnier in that way, but it mm. is... Uh, Equally, like, again, you're not going to see fireworks just because to Trent. And James presses on that a little bit, so I guess there's a little bit of fireworks there in the cross. But, yeah, like, Trent rolls with it just like he does here. Ha-ha, I'm losing. <laughs> he's a little more angry, I guess, actually, before any fireworks goes off. He's a little more angry in that debate, but um, that's it. So is it the funnest debate to watch? No, but I feel like it's a useful debate, especially if you are with very if you you're in your life you're with very erudite debaters who use a lot of the same techniques that trent does know how to exploit when they are trying to transition 
like when, when Trent was trying to transition from one point to the other, I think James should have pointed that out, even as the defender. And I, he definitely had to eviscerate it as the attacker. I think he, he had the first the first cross too. He had the first point. That's when you should just eviscerate the opening statement and not go into like the weird minutia, um, which he went into the weird minutia. So, oh, well, this, this debate is not the only purgatory debate out there, or sorry, the only solo scriptura debate out there, even that James White has done. So I think, and I think he was looking for novelty. He even says as much in his opening statement, James White is like, I want to do something different with this debate. So he doesn't just eviscerate the opening statement. He like asks about weird, obscure stuff, um, which is something. So hopefully you found this useful. The reason we did this debate is because I think it was the more more controversial, the more tie of the two. People were saying that James lost it, so I wanted to discuss it because I don't think James did his best here, but I don't think that Trent won. Yeah, and that's why we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my virtual friend has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Thanks for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes that are a little shorter than this, you can go to foundcause.podnewy.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. But if you want to see me and Sebastian's face and James White and Trent Horan and whoever those Lutheran guys in the middle, you're going to have to go to YouTube or Facebook because that's where we post the videos. And we're also on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you might find your podcast. So until next time, we talk about something completely different. In fact, theater is like prepping for... He's theater's at a baby, right? And he's on maternity leave. And he is uh, paternity, paternity leave. Not maternity <laughs> leave. There's not a secret sex change. And he is prepping a lot. He's like raring to go on some different issues that weren't this. So until then, we'll see you. Bye. Bye.